Welcome to The Social Contract, a podcast created by author George S. Corey and the artist Cleo. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Episode 8 of The Social Contract. I'm actor-writer-producer Tavia Gilbert. Continuing with our summer series, this episode, entitled Some Like It Not, is a tribute to the forever golden screen legend Marilyn Monroe. Few icons have endured like Marilyn has. To know her is to love her, and just about every person on the planet knows her, even those who may not be familiar with her films. This month marks the 60th anniversary of her tragic death in August of 1962 at the age of 36. Born Norma Jean Mortensen, and later known as Norma Jean Baker, she took on the name Marilyn Monroe. Monroe was her mother's maiden name, and went on to become one of the biggest movie stars of all time. The American Film Institute ranks her number six on its list of the greatest female screen legends from the golden age of Hollywood. But honestly, we think her ranking should be higher. Her movies, from The Seven-Year Itch to Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Bus Stop to The Misfits, are considered classics. There's been a lot of buzz about Marilyn lately, courtesy of the upcoming screen adaptation of Joyce Carol Oates' Marilyn Monroe-themed novel, Blonde, which premieres next month on Netflix. And we're thrilled to bring you George S. Corey's own magnificent Marilyn-themed satire, called Some Like It Not, a satirical reimagining of Billy Wilder's classic comedy, Some Like It Hot, in which Marilyn starred alongside Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis. I think you're going to like this one. But first, a quick recap about The Social Contract. This monthly podcast is for political junkies who might have forgotten just how fun and often comical politics and Washington's political figures can be. The podcast was created as a companion piece of sorts to George's book, Presidential Conversations. You don't need to be familiar with the book to thoroughly enjoy The Social Contract. But in keeping with its spirit, this podcast features fictional, often satirical send-ups of the hot-button political issues of the day. Now, I am so excited for you to hear the latest by George S. Corey, as well as see the artwork by Cleo that inspired this episode. It's called Marilyn Valkyrie. Check it out in the transcript. What I love about George and Cleo's vision for Marilyn is how powerful she comes across, which is so refreshingly different from how she is often portrayed. So, without further ado, here's Some Like It Not, performed by Stephen DeRosa and Stephanie Stewart. The White House, Summer 2022. As night fell on the White House, President Joe Biden was watching a replay of the day's televised January 6th committee hearings. Enough, he said to himself, as he sipped whiskey neat from a highball glass. It was his new favorite brand, literally called George Washington's Rye Whiskey, produced in limited edition batches at Mount Vernon from Washington's own centuries-old recipe. The president clicked through channels until he landed on the classic 1959 comedy Some Like It Hot. The film was part of a Marilyn Monroe retrospective, honoring the fast-approaching 60th anniversary of her death on August 4th. He laughed as he watched Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis in drag sashay somewhat clumsily onto a train platform. In the film, Lemmon and Curtis's characters, called Jerry and Joe, 
pose as members of an all-girls swing band to escape from the mob in Prohibition-era Chicago. On a train headed to Miami, they encounter showgirl Sugar, played by Marilyn Monroe, who meets them as Daphne and Josephine. Biden recalled his schoolboy crush on the screen goddess and how saddened he was as a young man when he learned of her tragic death at the age of 36. He thought it was a travesty that Kim Kardashian had been allowed to walk the red carpet at the Met Ball in Marilyn's famous nude dress. But he took some consolation in how Marilyn could still light up the screen in Billy Wilder's movie, one of his favorites. Biden allowed himself to sink into the plush seat as he drifted into sleep, until... He was startled awake by the sound of a passenger train screeching to a stop. The 46th president now found himself in a familiar setting, an Amtrak Acela train business class. He glanced over at his side, and there she was, seated right next to him, Marilyn. She was wearing the white halter-style dress from 1955's The Seven-Year Itch, made legendary thanks to a gust of wind from a New York City subway train, and holding a glass of champagne. Hi she said with a bubbly little wave. The Capitol, January 7th, 2021. In the wee hours of January 7th, Congress completed the certification of Joe Biden's victory in the 2020 presidential election. Thanks to the National Guard, Capitol Police, and Metropolitan Police, some semblance of order had been restored. Still, a couple of Republican senators, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina and Mitch McConnell of Kentucky were running scared. Neither Graham nor McConnell were one of the eight Republican senators who had objected to the certification of the vote, which, in their eyes, made them prime targets for the enraged MAGA mob. Senator Graham was especially afraid that the QAnon shaman would be coming for him, while McConnell feared the wrath of his own GOP colleagues. Within minutes of the certification, Mitch and Lindsay hurried to one of the many secret undisclosed locations in the deepest caverns of the Capitol complex. Security cameras would later show Mitch shuffling along stiff as a duck and Lindsay flailing his arms. Oh my, gasped Lindsay. We better get out of D.C. and as far away as we can from those MAGA crazies. At least until things settle down. How can we, mumbled Mitch. The roads are closed. Why, we can go by train, said Lindsay, suddenly chipper. And we can disguise ourselves. That way the nasty old MAGA mob won't recognize us. Disguise ourselves? You mean wear costumes? Mitch asked. Not quite, replied Lindsay with a twinkle in his eye. Union Station, January 7th, 2021. What's going on here? Is this a dream? Biden asked Marilyn, who is now clad in the iconic hot pink gown she wore in 1953's Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. What if it is? Marilyn purred. Outside the train, a couple of elderly church ladies made their way through the crowd at Union Station, arm in arm. The one on the left was actually Senator McConnell, in a silver bouffant wig, sensible tweed suit, support hose, and black patent leather Mary Janes to match his black patent leather pocketbook. 
With rouge smeared on his cheeks and a touch of raspberry lipstick, Mitch was more attractive as an old lady than he was an old man, which wasn't saying much. He could have easily passed for a female member of the British royal family. To his left was Senator Graham, who was going for a decidedly more glam look, but still looked like a church lady. Lindsay had squeezed himself into industrial-grade spanks to cinch his waistline and make the most of his padded bust and behind. He wore a belted, brightly colored floral dress. He knew he had the kind of complexion that could take color. With a fur stole draped over his shoulders and a veiled pillbox hat. And unlike plain Jane Mitch over there, he had really caked on the makeup, especially around his eyes. Lindsay never forgot how he'd once been told that he had such pretty blue eyes. Biden and Marilyn peered out the train car's window. Pure chaos. They saw two elderly ladies arguing with the train's porter, demanding a seat in business class. Despite their proper dress, these two weren't exactly what you'd call ladylike. Oh, no. Look at those poor old aunties, uttered Marilyn. Then she rose up out of her seat, fanning herself with both hands as she shimmied down the aisle. Biden watched her plead with the porter to let the old ladies onto the train. Not without proper identification, the burly porter told her. Oh, please, Mr. Porter, Marilyn begged, breathy. Look at them. They're just two harmless old women. We can't just leave them here among these crazies. She batted her eyes at him. Well, okay, miss. Oh, thank you, thank you. Marilyn planted a kiss on the porter's cheek, leaving a red lipstick mark. He blushed. All aboard! Blasted through the overhead speakers as Marilyn welcomed the ladies onto the train. As the train chugged along, Marilyn poured out champagne for them all. I adore champagne. Isn't it just elegant? Now, let's all raise our glasses and toast ourselves. Oh, what are your names? Before Mitch could even part his thin lips to respond, Lindsay jumped in. He had a lot more experience with drag names. Well, this here is Martha, and I'm Lindsay. With an A, not an E. Because Lindsay with an E is a boy's name. Nice to meet you, ladies. I'm Marilyn, and this here is Joey Boy. His real name is Joseph Robinette. That sounds so serious. I think Joey Boy suits him, don't you? Cheers! <laughs> hey, where are you girls from anyway? Mitch attempted to pitch his voice higher, but still sounded like Mitch McConnell. I'm from the great state of Kentucky. And I'm from South Carolina, cooed Lindsay in his best southern bell. Biden eyed them with a touch of suspicion. These two looked awfully familiar. Meanwhile, Marilyn couldn't help but notice the women's makeup was not doing them any favors, and Martha had a bit of a five o'clock shadow situation. While neither was a looker, Marilyn fervently believed that anyone could improve their looks by enhancing their natural beauty. Some fake eyelashes here, a strategically placed beauty mark there, the blonde bombshell leaped out of her seat and clapped her hands. Oh, I have an idea. Why don't I go get my makeup kit and give us girls makeovers? I'll be right back. With a twirl, she bounced her way back down the aisle. I do declare, that is one special young lady, Lindsay cried out. Aha, I knew it, exclaimed Biden. 
It was the way Lindsay said, I do declare, just like he used to in committee meetings when they served in the United States Senate together, that gave him away. You're not Martha and Lindsay. You're Mitch and Lindsay. Lindsay shrieked, literally clutching his pearls. The jig is up, fellas. Come clean, demanded Biden. Oh, thank goodness, murmured Mitch. This girdle was cutting off my circulation. What are you two wise guys doing here dressed up as women anyway? Oh, I know. You're running away from the Democrats and the news media after the embarrassment that was January 6th. You've got that half right, Joe, replied McConnell. We're running away from our own party. And the Magaloons, whispered Graham. Especially that QAnon shaman. Little late now, don't you think? What a couple of yellow-bellied cowards, Biden said. We're not cowards, spewed McConnell. We voted to certify you as president, didn't we? That's why we're on the run, Graham chimed in. It's going to be rhino hunting season in D.C. now that Trump is out, and I'm not talking about rhinoceros. For crying out loud, what are you going to do when they investigate this whole mess, asked Biden. Don't bother answering. I saw what you did. Nothing. Just a whole bunch of hollow words and empty sentiments. Here's the real test. What are you going to do if Trump runs again in 24? Well, replied Mitch, waffling. Look, I'm a Republican, so I will support our party's nominee. Lindsay replied as if reading from a script. Just then, Marilyn returned with her makeup kit. She was clad in a green embellished leotard, just like she wore in 1956's bus stop. She plopped down on her seat and languorously wrapped her arms around herself. Okay, who's first? She squealed. Don't bother with these two jokers, Marilyn, Biden told her. They're not who they say they are. They're not even women. Oh, thank goodness, exclaimed Marilyn, bursting into a delightful laughter. You weren't very attractive, ladies. Mitch removed his wig and sat there sulking. Lindsay kept his on, but looked none too happy himself, while Biden scowled at them both. What's the matter? Asked Marilyn. Biden tried to explain. Well, you see, Marilyn, this may be a dream, or maybe it's not, who the hell knows anymore. But the reality is our nation is divided. And our politics, and what we knew of our politics, are all up in the air. The former president came in and he was like a bull in a fine china shop. And I guess you could say we're all still picking up all the broken pieces. It's not like in your time when you had the leadership of some of my predecessors on both sides of the aisle. Guys like Franklin Roosevelt and John Kennedy. Well, I guess you knew him pretty well. And even Dwight Eisenhower. As the train pulled into Philadelphia's 30th Street station, Marilyn beamed her luminous smile. It's a sign. What do you mean? Asked Biden. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Marilyn cried. I may not know much about politics, but I know this. Love is the answer. It always is. Oh, my lovely child, whatever do you mean? Lindsay asked quietly. Love? In this day and age? Croaked Mitch. That's impossible, laughable even. You're right, you don't know much about politics. <laughs> Marilyn turned to Biden. Is that true, Mr. President? Sadly, I'm afraid Mitch might be right on this one, he replied. 
Marilyn then stood up and looked around her. Suddenly, her eyes changed as the satiny leotard became a metal breastplate. A horned helmet now adorned her head as she wielded a sword with one hand and gripped a shield with the other. She was transformed from a glittering showgirl into a towering Valkyrie, as mighty and tall as a skyscraper, declaring that we rise up, rise up, rise up, rise up, the bastards out of office. Marilyn's guttural, otherworldly pronouncement was so powerful, it reverberated all the way into the 2022 and 2024 elections. Oh, I just love the call to action in the surprising finale of Some Like It Not. Stephen DeRosa is always wonderful, but oh my God, Stephanie Stewart's Marilyn? Love. It may not surprise you to know that Stephanie is one of the most sought-after Marilyn Monroe tribute artists in the country, and I was very lucky to get a chance to speak with her. Here's part of our conversation. Hi, Steph. Welcome to the Social Contract Podcast. Your Marilyn Monroe is uncanny and amazing. I want to know how this all started, how Marilyn became your alter ego. Tell us how you began. Oh, geez, you're too sweet. Thank you. When I was 14, I was a freshman in high school, and I was in Little Shop of Horrors as Audrey. For whatever reason, my costumer decided to put me in a white dress that was halter and everything, and I had my big blonde hair. Thank you, Texas and Audrey. <laughs> and I got so many people coming up and saying, you look like Marilyn. You really remind me of Marilyn. And at that point, I hadn't even thought about it because my mama had raised me and my brother. She'd raised us on a on classic Hollywood TV shows and movies, you know. So it just kind of came about in that way. Like from that moment, it was as though she had entered my life and never left. Then... I was 16 and performing for my cabaret for my choir, and I was supposed to sing Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, but my guys couldn't rehearse, and so without understanding the implication of it, I ended up singing Happy Birthday, Mr. President in front oh, of my wow. school. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, at 16, a little scandalous, I guess I would say. And then I was in college and got asked to do gigs for like our president of my college at University of North Texas. And I ended up doing gigs in Vegas, like randomly out of nowhere. And then I moved to Los Angeles and things just kind of blew up in the best way. And I'm so grateful. Amazing. So it really was meant to be like you were supposed to be dovetailing with Marilyn Monroe. Like She was supposed to be a part of your life and you of hers in this way. I honestly feel like that. Yeah, she's been with me and I'm just so grateful because there have been times whenever I've been like, no, nah, all right, I'm going to go do something else. And then she's like, nah, <laughs> you're coming back in here. Aww. And I always want to like portray her with honor and dignity. That is always my goal. So if that's something that's going to help keep her legend alive and her legacy alive, absolutely, I will do that 100%. I love that. I was just going to say, you obviously love and respect her and are upholding her, which is very beautiful. I know from my co-producer that more often than not, you say no to the Maryland scripts that you're offered. And so I'm curious why that is, why you usually say no, why you said yes to this one. And we are so pleased that you did say yes to this one. But what what's that uh, dividing line? 
Well, first off, y'all's script was hilarious. And I (laughs) absolutely love parody. I think it's marvelous. And, you know, it's not every day that you could talk about Maryland and politics without bringing up a president. So it's unfortunate. I mean, I was happy to be able to do a script that required something that had nothing to do with JFK. Uh That was awesome. But also, I say no whenever people have gross historical inaccuracies. Mm. Or if it's something that's going to, like, paint Marilyn in a gross, or even what I do as a tribute artist, in a gross light, like something that diminishes the impact that she had on the world or what I aim to do, which is to entertain and help people. Mm -hmm. That is my goal in life. And if anything kind of diminishes that or makes it, you know, seem like it's something that's not or that's overly sexualized, I don't like any of that, especially with entertainment. Sometimes whenever you're first starting off, you're trying so hard to make those ends meet and like take whatever work you can get. Mm -hmm. But having those boundaries for yourself and understanding that you're having a moral obligation to yourself, but also to what you're putting out there in the world and the impact you're going to have, it's paramount. I feel like nowadays we throw around the words icon, iconic really loosely, too freely. But there are some people, very few people who are genuine icons, and certainly Marilyn Monroe is an icon. So in your experience portraying her, do you have any insight into what made her and what makes her an icon, what makes her so enduring 60 years after her death? So I've really thought about this in so many different ways because for her, it's not just one thing. To watch her on screen against who was considered the actor at that time, Sir Laurence Olivier, Mm -hmm. in The Prince and the Showgirl, that woman just dazzles. You cannot take your eyes off of her. I don't think that every Hollywood star has had that. Mm -hmm. And I think also with Marilyn, her flame burned so hot, so bright for such a short period of time. And there was so mystery shrouded around her death and the fact that she was so young Mm. at 36. And with Marilyn, I think it was the fact that she was lit from within and yet she never saw that in herself. Hmm. So she had this vast range of vulnerability to oozing sexuality that she could just turn on in a minute. I will just always find so many different facets of her fascinating. Mm. She portrayed dumb blondes, but she was anything but. Mm -hmm. She was incredibly brilliant. And she knew how to capture audiences in a way that other people didn't. I just, I don't know. I know this is a very long answer, but I just find the older that I get, the more fascinating I find her. And you're speaking again with so much love and it just, I can feel you thousands of miles away with the size of your heart for her and it's beautiful. So we're paying tribute to her 60 years after her death and you're an actor. I'm an actor. I think Marilyn was actually a really good actor. And I mean, comic acting is the hardest. She really excelled in her comedic parts. Do you agree? I completely agree. She was the comedic relief in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and in How to Marry a Millionaire. I mean, she just had a way with her that was just so funny and easy. And I love Seven Year Itch. She knew what she was doing. Mm. She knew how to play that. And just, you know, basically when it gets too hot, I put my undies in the icebox. (laughs) 
Like, not understanding what that would do to men whenever I first saw that. I was like, oh, as an adult, oh, girl, I see what you're doing. <laughs> bold. <laughs> so bold. Yeah. For her time, it was great. She just had a way with her. I, I can't even describe exactly how I feel because clearly you can hear my smile on my yeah, face just because yeah. I think she was so funny. So funny. I love that. Well, one last question. I have to ask you if you could pick only one what would you say is your favorite role of hers? Gentlemen prefer blondes as Laura Lee. Oh, gosh. I thought she was charming and hilarious. And her line of, gee, piggies, <laughs> a girl like I never, hardly ever gets to meet really interesting men. Sometimes my brain gets real starved. Just <laughs> the way she delivers her lines and that. But also her charisma with Jane Russell, their chemistry was marvelous. And they... It just had such a wonderful balance between them. And I just kind of love the backstory of it, how that kind of propelled her forward before Seven Year Itch. And it was so iconic in a lot of ways. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. I perform that one more often than not. So definitely has been very inspirational to me in a lot of ways. And that was also the first Marilyn movie I ever watched. And I watched that with my mom. So it was always very special. I love yeah. that. <laughs> Stephanie Stewart, everyone. You can find out more about her at stephstewart.com and follow her on Instagram and on YouTube. And we will put those links in the show notes and everybody should follow you and get to know you and get to know the iconic Marilyn Monroe better through your beautiful interpretation. Thanks for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So Some Like It Not is hilarious, but at its heart is a reminder about the importance of protecting the capital and public safety in general. That's why I'm so honored to welcome our special guest to the program, Patrick Burke. Pat is executive director of the Washington, D.C. Police Foundation, one of the organizations charged with keeping our nation's capital safe. He also served as the assistant chief in the Strategic Services Bureau of the Metropolitan Police Department of D.C. before being nominated by President Obama to be U.S. Marshal for the District of Columbia, where he had oversight over security detail for 145 federal judges, the fugitive unit, and warrant squad operations. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to him. Welcome to The Social Contract, Pat. It is such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, and it's a pleasure to be here with you. You know, this is a fun and a riotous episode, but it's one that touches on very serious matters and one that I think many Americans now more than ever will resonate with, and that's the importance of protecting and securing our nation's capital. So I'm wondering how D.C. is different from other cities in terms of having very unique public safety concerns. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. And that's a great question. Beyond protecting the 700 plus thousand residents of the District of Columbia as the seat of power with the Supreme Court, Congress, the White House, all in one city. Obviously, there's a lot of dignitaries visiting the city. There's a lot of First Amendment activity in the city. So it's a balance of making sure we're allocating police to take care of our citizens, but also keep our 
First Amendment demonstrators safe, keep our dignitaries safe. So that presents a lot of challenges. One of the things that I've been very auspicious to be involved with in my career was working with Special Operations Division. And a few of the units in SOD are specifically assigned to handle dignitary protection and coordination with the Secret Service to make sure that our First Amendment activities in conjunction with maybe U.S. Capitol Police, United States Park Police, and other agencies are kept safe and really protect D.C. from terrorism. I want to talk to you about young listeners. Before we get to that, I'm curious, you've had such a long and an esteemed career in law enforcement. Did you know from the time you were a youth that this was what you wanted to do with your life? Definitely not. Even when I was in college and I'd started grad school, I was thinking about law school and I actually had my first visit to D.C. thinking about looking at American University Law School. And I had a good friend down here who worked for the D.C. Police Department. He said, hey, why don't you join the police department, save some money? At the time, it was 1989. We were in the height of a crack epidemic in the city, Mm -hmm. very tough times. Uh, Right now, the city's got a great budget. At the time, we didn't. We were averaging about 450 to 500 murders a year in D.C., especially young black men. It was a very challenging time. So I said, you know what, I'll give it a shot. And I fell in love with it right away. And I feel it was almost divine intervention that I was pushed into this direction or, or guided into this position. And it's been a blessing every day since. You think about police work, you're actually getting paid to help people. Mm. Somebody's got a flat tire, you name it, having a bad day, domestic violence. If the police can come in and hopefully help people in that situation, that's really the goal of what we do with the public. And now you're paying it forward. And we have quite a few young listeners, Presidential Conversations. The book that inspired this podcast is going to be getting a young reader's edition called Presidential Conversations for Kids. So I'm curious what lesson you would like to impart to young readers and young listeners about the importance of respecting our national landmarks and our national institutions like the Capitol building. And not only respecting our institutions, but just respecting and being kind to each other. I think is important in understanding other people. When you think about what the greatest quality is for somebody to be a government worker, to be a police officer, and I'll always say empathy, you know, think about trying to put yourself into somebody's shoes and trying to understand, to deeply listen and to understand people. We've all got the ability as American citizens to make our opinions known but we can do that in a respectful way. And as we always say, we've got demonstrators and people coming in to peaceably assemble as they're guaranteed under the First Amendment every single day in Washington, D.C. We welcome people. We love it. But there's a good way to do it. The Police Foundation does a lot of youth outreach, I understand. And that's a cause that's near and dear to the social contract team's heart. Can you tell us about these programs, especially I'm really intrigued by the Junior Cadet Program. Tell us a little bit about that. So the Junior Cadet Program involves Title I schools in D.C. where we have officers going into fifth grade classrooms and really building relationships with the kids in these classrooms and their teachers and talking about civic responsibilities and and being good Americans and hopefully just being mentors and role models for these young people. And a lot of us older folks are familiar with officer-friendly programs. And people like to know a police officer and have somebody that they can go to with the problem. And when you think about school resource officers, especially in D.C., 
They're there to be mentors, to guide them. If there's an issue, hopefully they can be the counselor, the problem solver. And the other nice thing we do with that program is after so many weeks with the relationship building with these youth and their teachers, we'll take the kids out of the city and give them experiences such as trips to Gettysburg, Luray Taverns. We'll take kids up to the Statue of Liberty in mm. New York City, but just different places outside of the city, the Udvar Hazy Smithsonian to see the airplanes and some different things out there, just to have an experience with the police, with their teachers away from the city uh, where a lot of kids don't venture out of right. to tell the truth. So it's nice to build those relations and hopefully get kids interested, maybe potentially long-term in police work, firefighting, military, some sort of public service. And at the end of the day, even if they don't decide to go into one of those fields, hopefully have a trajectory for success. So a lot of times you hear about the pipeline to prison. We're really hoping for pipelines to success, regardless of what you want to do, you know, be a construction worker, an engineer, really guiding people into, you know, staying in school, working hard and fulfilling your dreams because you're not involved in the criminal justice system. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for being here with us. It's such a pleasure to have you. Oh, it's so great to be here too. And I look forward to uh, talking with you again. Thank you. You can learn more about the D.C. Police Foundation at dcpolicefoundation.org. We'll put a link in the show notes. What a way to conclude our summer series. I hope you all are feeling as inspired as I am. As I do every episode, I'd like to conclude with a quote. This one from the great Marilyn Monroe herself. Take it away, Steph. Nothing lasts forever, so take chances and never have regrets. Because at one point, everything you did was exactly what you wanted. Ah, to live it up with no regrets. Wouldn't that be nice? I cannot wait for next month's tribute to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That episode, called Vote Ruthlessly, kicks off our special election series, as we count down to the midterm elections on November 8th. Be sure to catch that episode when it drops on Monday, September 26th. Remember, new episodes always premiere on the last Monday of the month. I want to thank our very special guests, Stephanie Stewart and Patrick Burke, the always amazing Stephen DeRosa, and, of course, the creators of The Social Contract, George S. Corey and Cleo. Most of all, I want to thank you, our loyal listeners. As always, we're thrilled to have you with us. We welcome you to follow the Social Contract podcast, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And we'd love it if you'd rate and review us. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at MyTSCPodcast. You can visit George S. Corey at georgescorey.com and Cleo at theartistcleo.com. This has been the Social Contract Podcast, created by George S. Corey and Cleo. Produced and hosted by Tavia Gilbert. Associate producer Katie Flood. Music courtesy of Listen Audio. Mix and master by Kayla Elrod. This has been a podcast from Listen Audio in association with TalkBox Productions.